We often say that strategy is the application of ways and means to achieve an end. But what are means? Are they just the tools of war, tanks, infantrymen, bombers, and ships, and so on? Or is it something more? That is the subject of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome to Episode 72 of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, retired U.S. Cavalry Colonel, former instructor of the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College, the Naval War College, and currently contract faculty for the Army War College. My intent for these podcasts is to be a kind of war college for everyone. Not as in-depth as our national defense universities, but instead focused on what I believe to be enduring lessons of war, concepts I think every citizen should understand about war, peace, and everything in between. Now, when I say there are enduring lessons of war, I don't mean that the way we fight war is the same as the way Napoleon, Washington, or Frederick the Great fought war. The tools of warfare change and evolve. This drives changes in the way we fight. Now, if all you do is apply new tools to old ways of fighting, well, you wind up like France against the Germans in 1940. What remains the same are the things we do and why we do them while how we do them, or the tools we use, are always changing. Here is one way of describing what I mean by this. Infantry, artillery, and cavalry, or armor, don't necessarily mean soldiers marching on the ground, cannon firing long distances, horses charging across an open field, or even tanks doing much the same thing while shooting at other tanks. The terms infantry, artillery, etc. represent capabilities not particular weapon systems such as rifles and cannon. Now, I'm a retired cavalryman, so I will use cavalry to demonstrate the idea. Modern armored and air cavalry provide the same capabilities cavalry has provided since the time of Alexander the Great. Cavalry capabilities include moving swiftly to find the enemy, keeping the enemy from finding you, determining enemy intent, or slowing the enemy down, giving the main body time to get where it needs to be for the main fight. Cavalry has performed those roles, giving commanders those capabilities, whether mounted on horses with sword and spear, riding to a position to dismount and engage the enemy with muskets or rifles, or using fire and maneuver from tanks and helicopters. The things done by that cavalry capability remain much the same, while the tools and methods may change. The same is true for other combat branches. For example, infantry provides capabilities to gain and hold terrain and secure populations. It has done this when marching as a phalanx, in a legion, parachuting behind enemy front lines, or moving rapidly over great distances in armored vehicles or helicopters. This idea even applies to air power, remembering that many of the great pioneers of military air power started their careers as cavalry officers. Now, in my office at home, I have a picture called Pershing's New Scouts, showing a horse cavalry scout coming up to a Curtis Jenny biplane during the Mexican Punitive Expedition around 1915. So, when trying to understand how we fight wars, or at least battles and engagements, don't fixate on names and particular weapons, but rather on what these tools are intended to accomplish on the battlefield. When talking about capabilities, it's interesting that the DOD Dictionary of Military and Associated Terms doesn't have a specific definition for capability, although it uses the term 29 times. 
Nonetheless, I was able to use that dictionary to put together a definition derived from definitions of specific military capabilities. My definition is, quote, a tool or activity employed using appropriate techniques to create effects and operationally desirable conditions, unquote. Therefore, a capability may be inherent to a tool or activity, in other words, to a resource, but to be a capability, it must be employed using techniques or methods that will create intended effects. Now, if this seems to be a hard concept to grasp, you're not alone. It gets even harder at the higher levels of warfighting. Recently, while I was at the U.S. Army War College, the students were engaged in a large-scale war game about a scenario set in the near future. The challenge was to get these lieutenant colonels, colonels, and Navy captains to move beyond thinking about platforms, such as ships and planes, to think about capabilities. For example, rather than an airstrike on a certain target, what is it that you want to accomplish? Then, what capabilities do you have to bring that about? What resources are available to you that provide those capabilities? Then leave it to lower level commanders to determine how to apply the resources you chose which enable those capabilities. This is the challenge of our war colleges. To get our future senior leaders to move from thinking about how to fight a battle with the tools they have to how to plan a campaign or a war using the capabilities available to them. Some of these capabilities might not even be military. For example, let's say that you're concerned about an enemy military force in a certain port. Rather than just ordering an airstrike, you have to think more strategically. Why are you concerned about that enemy force? What can it do to you? That is, what are its capabilities to interfere with your plans and execution of those plans? What are the possible ways to keep the enemy from doing those things to you? Now, destroying it is certainly one way, but destroying it may not be the only way, or even the best way, of accomplishing what you want to achieve. Two millennia ago, Sun Tzu said, Supreme skill is subduing the enemy's operations and forces without battle. So, what other capabilities exist to accomplish that same end without fighting? Can you isolate it so that it cannot exercise its capabilities and is therefore no longer an immediate threat? What capabilities do you have or which can be made available to you so you can do that? Can you use information to convince the enemy not to fight? Can you conduct cyber operations to mislead or shut down communications, making it impossible for the enemy to do anything? Of course, you also have to consider the consequences of using any particular capability or set of capabilities. What if the capability you chose and the resource you dedicated to that capability doesn't produce the effect you wanted? What are the unintended consequences of using that capability, such as damage to infrastructure or civilian death and injury? Such unintended consequences present risks that must be considered as they may affect your ability to conduct subsequent or related operations or even win the war. For example, if you plan on using that port after you eject the enemy forces, an attack that destroys those port facilities might not be the best choice. While considering all of this, and with Sun Tzu in mind, you also remember that Clausewitz warned, Kind-hearted people might, of course, think that there was some ingenious way to disarm or defeat the enemy without too much bloodshed, 
and might imagine that this is the true goal of the art of war. Pleasant as it sounds, it is a fallacy that must be exposed." Unquote. So, you decide that a long-range strike capability will provide the best opportunity for success, despite unintended consequences. The point here is that we are applying a capability, long-range strike, and then choosing the most appropriate and available resource that provides that capability. Now, this may sound like choosing a hammer, that is, the right hammer, to drive a nail. It's something more. It's looking at what you want to do, for example, securing two pieces of wood to one another, and then looking at the best way to do that using the resources that are available to you. Okay, you say, I get it. Today's infantry with rapid mobility, greater firepower, and digital interconnectivity may be very different than Caesar's legions, but they offer similar battlefield capabilities to military commanders today. So, why do you need to know that? Well, for one, I hope it helps you to understand or even to ask the right questions about current armed conflicts. Next, it just might make watching old war movies more entertaining. More importantly, and as I will now explain, it should help you make better decisions as an engaged citizen in our ongoing experiment in representative democracy. Civilian control of the military doesn't just mean that the president is commander-in-chief and politically appointed service secretaries oversee the military departments. It also means that civilians, in this case Congress, appropriate money, your money, to purchase equipment that enables those capabilities. We are constantly bombarded with information about the high cost of weapon systems and the defense budget overall. Can we cut the defense budget and still have the same or better military capabilities? Maybe. But we need to know what capabilities we need and ways to deliver those capabilities. Instead, we seem to focus on platforms, on tools, rather than the capabilities those platforms are supposed to provide. Do we need one jet that can provide three different capabilities but cost five times as much as if we built three jets, each focused on one of those capabilities? Maybe. Maybe not. What is the capability that we expect a tank battalion to provide? What does the tank and its organization need to deliver that capability? Now, if people like Patton and Guderian weren't asking that question a hundred years ago, we might still be trying to use horses instead of tanks. What is the best way to build that system? How much does it cost to build a system where key components are produced in 48 states? Can it be done more efficiently with production in, oh, let's say, five states? These questions are debated in Congress and the decisions ultimately find their way into the National Defense Authorization Act and the National Defense Appropriations Act. Those Congress folk are your representatives. They work for you. They are spending your money. When you understand the difference between capabilities and platforms, you can work to make sure your representative or senator does too and encourage them to act appropriately. If they don't, well, then you can work to fix that, too. Now, I've been talking about resources that provide capabilities, as though resource and capability mean pretty much the same thing. They do not. Going back to the definition I proposed earlier, to truly represent a capability, the resource must be used in a way that enables that resource to have maximum effect. 
I mentioned France against Germany in 1940. Some people maintain that France had better tanks than Germany. The difference is that Germany used that resource effectively, while France, for various reasons, did not. Therefore, Germany had a mobile warfare capability, whereas France failed to realize the capability of its armored forces. Going back to the analogy of fixing two pieces of wood together, a hammer and nails have the inherent capability to do that for you. But if you don't use the hammer properly, you won't get the effect you are looking for. The resource will have failed to deliver its capability. There is one other necessary component to using the resource effectively, making it into a true capability. That is the will to use that resource in a way that realizes its full potential. But that's a subject for another podcast, and this is enough for today. For now, please hit like and join me again for the next episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare.